you have been called. Before the foundations of the earth, you were chosen by the Father to be adopted through the Son and sealed with the Holy Spirit. We've been called, church, for by grace you've been saved through faith. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be known, called. We've been called to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Now we seek to think differently, live honorably, care compassionately, serve selflessly, and love unconditionally that the world might see Jesus in us. Each and every one of us are called. And so, church, let us be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Let us put on the whole armor of God that we can stand against the schemes of the devil and all that would seek to distract us from the mission that is before us. You have been called. We have been called. May we, the church, be forever united in this truth. We have been called. Well, good morning again, and welcome if you're joining us online or in Myerstown. Uh, we love you greatly whatever, wherever you're at, perhaps listening on vacation uh, to the live feed as well. We know it's that time of year, and uh, it's just great to gather uh, wherever you are around God's Word and the worship of Him. And we're going to be uh, looking at Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn there, and uh, we'll, I'll meet you there in a few moments as we uh, kind of orient ourselves to what's going to be going on in this particular passage of Scripture. Uh, today is the last message in the series that we have titled, called United in Christ. But you'll notice it's not actually the end of the book of Ephesians. We're, we're going to see today uh, that the, the last of this particular section and series, and then next week, Pastor Brett is going to kick off our summer series, uh, also titled, Called Stand Firm, where we're going to be looking at the section that's commonly called the Armor of God. And each of our pastors are going to rotate preaching through this series uh, in the months of July and August. Uh, and, and actually, Pastor Jerry, who's on vacation this week and doing a study break as well, um, by the way, pray for our senior leader as he's away and that he gets that rest and refreshment, but also that God would just inspire him. He's, he's doing not just vacation, but he's also doing that study break to prepare for the teaching for the next several months for our church as well. And so Pastor Jerry's going to preach in two weeks, and then, and then he'll just keep rotating through every couple weeks through the summer series as well. But today, the last of this particular series, even though not the end of the book, the last of called... Uh, united in Christ is going to be looking at verses 5 to 9 in our text. Let me just remind you just a little bit of where we've been. Last week we had a guest preacher, and so we've been out of it for a week, and uh, we've been doing this study through the book of Ephesians titled Called, and we saw uh, really, I kind of break the book down into four different parts, and chapter one is our position, and chapters two and three is our purpose, and chapters four and five is kind of our practice, and then chapter six that, that we'll do with this series is, is the power, and in our position in that first section, we were told that God has called us He's chosen us through the Father, redeemed us through Jesus the Son, and sealed us by the Holy Spirit. And that position then gives us great purpose. As grace was unveiled in chapter 2, we see that it breaks down dividing walls and brings us all together into this thing called the church. And then we're told how to act, how to, uh, he urges us to walk worthy of this calling that we have. To be united is to be worthy of the calling. To use our diverse gifts to build the church is a, diver, is, is a purposeful calling. And, and then to see how to relate to one another as we put off the old self and put on the new self. And, and then ultimately how we are called to walk in the Holy Spirit. So Paul has been writing from Rome to the church in Ephesus where he pastored for like three years. He's been away now actually for four or five years, so it's been seven years or so since he's been there, and he's, his heart is that as he understands his calling that we all in the church understand our calling as well. And he says we need to walk in the Spirit. That's kind of where we left things off in chapter 5. And actually a really key verse in chapter 5, verse 21 says that we should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, if we're walking in the Spirit, 
We, we then uh, we sing songs of praise, we give thanksgiving to God, and we find great unity together in the body of Christ. And Paul then uh, unpacks what that unity looks like. When we mutually submit to one another out of the reverence for Christ, he, he tells us what that's supposed to look like in three different areas. Uh, Pastor Jerry talked about the marriage relationship and how uh, walking in the Spirit and submitting mutually to one another, how that looks like together. And then we talked about that in the parenting relationship as well. And now today we're going to look at the last structure, social structure that he deals with. In this, in this section. Now, uh, let me just tell you that as Paul has been explaining walking in the Spirit and, and submitting to each other so that there's unity, he, he's given us the, the structure of how that's supposed to work. And as he's done so, it, it's kind of gotten a little bit more intense, first in the marriage relationship, then in the parenting relationship, and now in this next relationship as well. And, and, and I have to tell you, as, I, as we start on this, it's going to seem a little bit disorienting for a moment, but if you hang with me for just a second, we'll just try to see what God's Word has to say in a way that brings us to an understanding of it, because it's a little bit shocking. Paul says that mutual submission is lived out in the relationships between masters and slaves. And i got to tell you, this week's been a little bit of a tough week to figure out what exactly Paul is saying here because my heart was kind of churned up when this issue comes up because I know like slavery is absolutely despicable and wrong and not right. And so what Paul says, it starts to, I really have to work through that and, and, and we're going to work through that together in a second. But let's, let's just talk about this issue of slavery for a second because it wasn't just an issue that happened back 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote this. It's something that that's still prevalent and, and a problem today. I know that because I just read an article from the BBC who, who uh, the title was this. I mean, this was like Wednesday. It said this, no diplomatic immunity in a modern slavery case, the Supreme Court rules. Let me read just part of the article. It says the UK Supreme Court has ruled that diplomats cannot hide behind immunity to exploit workers in a victory for campaigners against modern slavery. Awesome. That's good. That's a good ruling right there. Okay? Let me explain it further. Diplomats are normally protected from both criminal charges and civil cases in countries where they are posted. But the court found that a Saudi diplomat accused of exploiting a Filipino domestic worker in London did not have immunity in relation to the allegation. And lawyers say that it was the first ruling of its kind in the world. That's significant. That's really good. The case was brought by Josephine Wong, 30, who alert, alleges she was forced to work for Khalid Basfar and his family in conditions of modern slavery. Her lawyers say she was confined to the house at all times except to take out the rubbish, subjected to verbal abuse, and given only leftover food to eat when her employers were at home. She alleges that she was made to work from 7 a.m. until 11.30 every day of the week with no days off or rest breaks, and she was forced to wear a doorbell so her employers could summon her at any moment. She alleges that after being brought to the U.K. from Saudi Arabia in 2016, she was not paid anything for seven months. She says she was then paid 1,800 pounds for six months' work in one lump sum, a fraction of her contractual entitlement, and after that, not paid again. Ms. Wong managed to escape in 2018 and brought the claim against Mr. Bashfar in an employment tribunal. The reality is, slavery is something that is still happening in our world today. The International Labor Organization estimates that 40 million people in our world are in some sort of enslaved condition. They estimate 16 million of those are in some sort of labor slavery, 15 million of those are in some sort of uh, marriage where they were not given a choice. 5 million are sex traffickers. 4 million are in some sort of state-imposed slavery. And it just got me to thinking a little bit, how does slavery and the reality of it impact me? You know, this issue of slavery caused me to get a little bit nervous. When I think about it, I admittedly get guarded. I don't like it. I recognize the mess that it's made, but in the current cultural climate, I'm unsure how to react to it. And oftentimes, 
I just, I'm silent about it, and I just kind of set it aside. How do you interact with it? Do you ignore it? Are you just kind of aware of it? Maybe you're an activist for it. We all in, in this room come at it from different angles in different ways. The reality of it is that, that slavery impacts us. We know that Route 30 is an area of sex trafficking that happens. We have a whole organization in Lit. It's called North Star to help those coming out of that. We know that it's an issue here. And so when there's an issue of this magnitude, we have to go back to uh, what we've been doing all throughout this series and, and come back to the chair and ask God, 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 what, what, what's going on here? How does this work? How should I be involved in it? And actually the Bible, even though I'm often silent on things like this, the Bible's not silent. However, when I got into my chair this week and started asking the Lord a little bit about it, what I found was quite frankly shocking. I kind of go, I didn't want to be, what? Lord, you're saying what? What are you saying? That, I, that doesn't make sense to me. And yet, as I began to wrestle this issue down, I saw that we are called to Christ-centeredness, and the intensity of what's being addressed here is trying to bring us to the, the, the clear focus of what Christ-centered living actually looks like as we walk in the Spirit and mutually submit to one another. And so let's take a look at mutual submission at our work and see if it works. Today I want to show you what it means to be called to Christ-centeredness and how this call undermines slavery and restores the dignity, worth, and value of every person created in the Imagio Dei. I must have Christ at the center of my life if mutual submission is going to work. That's what Paul's saying here. If you're a note taker, that's going to be the driving thought throughout the rest of the message. I must have Christ at the center of my life if mutual submission is going to work at all levels, even this most intense of levels that we, we are kind of seeing here today. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at this issue of slavery today, just kind of in the structure of, uh, of thought here today. We're going to look at the issue of slavery that's brought up in the text. We're going to wrestle with it and how the Bible deals with it. And then we're going to see the principles, the first principles that Paul is actually teaching us and how it applies to, to us today. Even though here I don't believe there's anybody who is a slave or a master, this text you're going to see still has important things to teach us about our relationships and how to walk in the Spirit in mutual submission. So let me read our text today from Ephesians chapter 6. Paul writes this in verse 5 to 9, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Maybe you understand a little bit about why I had to pop out of the chair as I asked the Lord to help me understand what he was calling me to in this particular passage. When you read the first phrase where it says, bondservants, obey your earthly masters. And my initial response is, what? And Paul, Come on, where's your outrage on this matter? You know that slavery is wrong. It's despicable. Why are you not canceling this immediately right here? Why, in fact, does it seem like you're condoning what's going on? And it's because Christ-centered living redeems broken social relationships. That's what Paul's teaching us here. Christ-centered living redeems the brokenness that he's actually addressing in the text. Now, it's going to take us a moment to see the fullness of that, but, but can I just plant that in your mind right now? 
that Christ-centered living, if you get Christ at the center of your life, it's going to redeem broken social structures, including the structure of slavery. But I'm still kind of at that shock point, right? We just kind of read the text and, and then highlighted again what is going on here. He said, what? why are you not actually abolishing slavery right here, right now, Paul? Think about this for a second. As shocking as it is for us today to read these words, what would it have been like to read the original letter in the Ephesian church? Where in fact, we know that the reason Paul is addressing this issue is because there were those in the church who were masters and those in the church who were slaves. They were worshiping the Lord together in church, which seems, how does that even work? And that's what Paul's trying to tell us how it works. But first this, is the Bible condoning slavery? Do do you think that the Bible teaches that slavery is an okay thing? Does that seem right with you? We have to wrestle with this a little bit because our modern sensibility and our, our modern cultural lens looks at this and says, I would not have gone about this the way Paul did because I don't, I don't think that's what the Bible teaches, but I mean, the reality is this is one of the accusations against the Bible and against our faith. They say, well, it has passages like this, slaves obey your masters. I can't trust the Bible on that issue, so I'm not going to trust it on others. You, you see, this is a bigger issue than even just the issue itself. And so we have to ask the question, does the Bible condone slavery? And, and actually, let's start with this. Is that, what, is that what Paul is doing right here, right now? Is Paul by saying, bondservants, obey your earthly masters? That's the command. Is he saying here that slavery is okay? And I want to present to you the idea that Paul is not in any way condoning slavery, even though he's not outright condemning it in an overt type of way from the start. And there's a number of reasons for this. I was actually looking at Kent Hughes as, as, as a pastor who has written a great commentary on the book of Ephesians, and, and he helped me start to understand this a little bit. He said there's actually four things that are going on in the world at this point as to why Paul doesn't just cancel and abolish slavery right here at this moment. The first is this. The institution of slavery was not generally considered evil by slaves or masters at that particular time. And that is a little bit shocking. (laughs) Is he just saying some things to kind of let the text off the hook here? Or is that really what's going on? We have to be careful because we recognize that there have been elements of of our faith throughout history that have used texts like this to to, uh, prop up and say that slavery is okay. And and so we don't want to do that. We have to be careful of that. But we do have to realize there is something different going on 2,000 years ago than how we even understand slavery today. The reality is when we come to read God's word, we are reading it with a number of different lenses on as we look at God's word. We read it through the lens of experience. We read it through the lens of history. We read it through the lens of culture. And, And then we look at the words on the page and we see the truth and it comes back through all of those lenses to help us understand, come to an understanding and an interpretation of what's going on. And so we have to deal with the lens of culture. That's what the Kent Hughes is actually pointing us to. He, he's saying that our cultural lens understands the issue of slavery through our history in the 16th, 17th, and 18th century in the New World Americas in which we even live here today. And the way slavery was actually occurring in those centuries, he's saying, is different than the way it was occurring 2,000 years ago. Their, their cultural lens was different, is what he's saying, because slavery was different, but I would also contend still wrong. We're not letting slavery off the hook. We're just coming to the realization that there's, a, there's something different in how the original audience would have heard this to how we even hear it sitting here today in 2022. The reality is that in the Roman Empire, it's estimated that there were 60 million slaves. Now, now let that lodge for just a second. We said earlier that it's estimated today with a population of over 7 trillion that there's 40 million people in slavery. 
with a population that was far less in the Roman Empire. There were 60 million slaves. That means in a city like Ephesus, you would probably have at least a third, maybe even more of, of the population of that city involved in some sort of slavery. Again, that doesn't make it acceptable, but it makes it a reality that's different than how we experience even, even experience today. And, and so there's been a, a number of great work done about slavery in ancient times. Murray Harris uh, has talked about the Greco-Roman world and the slaves that Paul would have been talking to. And he, sa- he says a couple of important things. He says, first, slaves were not distinguishable from anyone else by his race, speech, or clothing. They looked and lived like everyone else and were never segregated off from the rest of society. He then says that slaves were oftentimes more educated than their owners in many cases and held high managerial positions. And then from a financial standpoint, slave made the, slaves made the same wages as free laborers, and therefore they were not themselves usually poor and often accrued enough wealth that they were able to purchase their freedom. In fact, the economics of the Roman Empire at this time, often uh, if you were in debt, you would place yourself in indentured servitude, a form of slavery, and work off your debt, and then you, when you had done so, you were free to go. And then finally, the view that people were slaves, uh, it was that the people were not slaves for life in the first century. Most were able to, to come to a place where they bought their freedom. John Stott, in his commentary, says it this way. It says, they did not merely do menial work. They did, not nearly, uh, they did nearly all the work, including oversight and management of most professions. See, in the Greco-Roman Empire, those who were of a higher class oftentimes saw work as beneath them, and so they found others to do the work while they lived a life of somewhat comfort and luxury. Going on, it says, some slaves were more educated than their owners. They could, they could own property, even other slaves, and were allowed to save money to buy their freedom. No slave class existed, for slaves were pre- present in all but the highest economic and social strata. Many gained freedom by the age of 30. Listen, The cultural lens was different is what we're saying. That doesn't make slavery right, but there's a difference in how it was actually happening at that point. There's a second thing that we see uh, as to why Paul did not outright condemn slavery here, and that's that positive reforms were happening in the Roman Empire at this time. Paul's using a form of literature that was common in their day called the household, uh, a household literature where people instructed others about how to manage their business and their family, including slavery. And in the writings that we have from Rome at this time, we already see that the idea of slavery was being elevated, that that was something that shouldn't be done. Slaves were being elevated, excuse me, to the point where there was already reforms happening in the institution. Here's a third reason Paul didn't attack it right away. Hughes says to attack slavery would, be wrong, would, be, would wrongly label Christianity economically subversive because it was so ingrained in the economy. If you were just to rip slaves out of those things, it would have turned the economy completely upside down. And, and, and as a fledgling faith that was just beginning to gain traction, it would have caused that to be seen very negatively in that way. And so Paul actually subverts slavery, not overtly, but covertly, as I'll show you in just a moment. And the way he does it is, number four, the radical brotherhood and equality that's explicit in the gospel would undermine slavery. The reality is Paul doesn't just cancel and abolish the idea of slavery here for these reasons, but it still had me a little bit upset. (laughs) Because does the Bible really teach that Slaves obey your masters. It's like, how does the Bible teach slavery in other places? Does the Bible condone slavery? And the answer is no. I understand we have our thinking hats on today, right? We're going to get to the practical stuff in just a moment, but we, we just got to think a little bit about this issue to really understand what the principles are for us even today. So I pose the question, does the Bible condone slavery? Slavery is first mentioned, by the way, in Genesis chapter 9. Right after the flood, the the first thing that happens is the covenant is renewed, but then Noah uh, falls into sin. There's this incident where he he plants a vineyard, and then he gets drunk with the wine, and then his son finds him naked in his tent, and he shames him. He mocks him. And, And Noah's response to that is to say to the son that mocked him, 
I'm going to have you enslaved to your two other brothers who covered over my shame. We see that slavery is first mentioned in the Bible at this instance. Now, I believe that it probably was happening before the flood as well. But, but this is the first time where it's actually mentioned, where we see it actually uh, raise its ugly head. And notice where it comes from. It comes from a leader who is ashamed of his own sin and then responds powering over the person who shamed him with a, in a sinful way. That's what the Bible is actually showing us in that moment. The Bible then goes on to show slavery happening in the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They all had slaves. But as many things are recorded in the book of Genesis that are not consistent with the teaching of God's word, for example, polygamy, every time these things are talked about, it's showing that it doesn't work. If you read Genesis properly, when you see the issue of slavery or polygamy or any of those things, what the text is actually showing is that it doesn't work. It's not working. It's subverting those institutions, not supporting them. To the point where at the end of Genesis, we see somebody who, who really found themselves in slavery and in the character of Joseph. You're familiar with the story of Joseph, right? He kind of brags about his coat and his brothers get all upset and they try to kill him, but then they throw him in the pit. And the one brother says, you know what? Let's not kill him. Let's sell him to the slave traders. And he's sold into slavery to Egypt. Remember all the different twists and turns in this story, but at the end of it, the, the Bible gives this big banner about Joseph's life, and it says essentially this. It's, it says, what man intended for evil, God uses for good. That applies in so many different parts of our life, but what we see in the story of Joseph is he was sold into slavery. What man intended for evil, God actually used that for good. He rescued his people from the famine, and he incubated a nation within Egypt. Unfortunately, after a while, after a number of centuries, as slaves again. But what did God say about slavery and his people being slaved? He, he sent his messenger Moses to Pharaoh, and he said to Pharaoh, let my people go. Because cause, cause the Bible doesn't tolerate in any way slavery. The Bible doesn't condone in any way slavery. The Bible is about freedom and redemption, so much so that when we get to the stories of Jesus, we, we see that he's actually saying, I've come to release captives from captivity. I've come to release those who are slave to sin. I've come to do all the work that's going to redeem them and buy them back because I'm not about slavery, whether it's human slavery or spiritual slavery. That's not what our faith is about. And so if we just do a good reading of Scripture, what we find is that while there are passages of, of Scripture that we're, we have to deal with here today, the totality of what Bible teaches is very much anti-slavery, against slavery. It's never saying that slavery should be something that we engage in. The Bible clearly opposes slavery because of a number of things. As I, as I began to think about what does God teach, and as, God, as I was sitting wrestling with the whole idea of slavery in the chair, remember, when we don't understand a piece of Scripture, we don't just cast off all of Scripture. We go to the one who originated Scripture. We go to God, we get into the chair, and we, we, we stay there, and we wrestle with it. God, what are you actually saying? A couple things came to mind. The Bible clearly opposes slavery because the, uh, we understand the great commandment to love God and then love your neighbor as yourself. What that's saying is that we are commanded to love our neighbor, not own our neighbor. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, as he was preaching, said that we are to treat others the way that we would want to be treated. And I'm absolutely certain that I don't want to be treated enslaved. We see, and I've just done the kind of survey for you here, that neither slavery nor the idea of somebody being a master is ever viewed positively in the Bible in regards to relationships with one another. Never. The picture of the gospel is freedom from bondage. And then finally what I saw is that Paul and other New Testament teachings, New and Old Testament teachers, teachings, all of the Bible, 
They actually undermine slavery. They actually cut the root of slavery so that it cannot exist in in Christ-centered living. That's what Paul does. That's what he's actually doing here in this text. But all throughout Paul, what we see here is that he releases the demonically empowered slave girl and he gets beaten and thrown in prison for it. And when he does return a slave named Onesimus to his master, Philemon, he actually writes the, the, the whole manifesto about what the Bible teaches about slavery when he says, hey, I'm sending this slave, runaway slave back to you. He, I found him in Rome. He became a believer. And so guess what? He's no longer just your slave. He's your brother. The slave becomes a brother and it completely changes the relationship. So treat him as such. It redefines how that relationship actually works. And in doing so, Paul undermines slavery as he's actually doing in this particular text here today as well. What we're seeing is that Christ-centered living redeems broken social structures, including this one, slavery. And and Paul does that in a couple of different ways. He starts back in chapter 5, verse 1, by saying, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children of God. Listen, if we are to be the children imitating our father, who is our father? Well, he's the father to the fatherless. He's the champion of widows. He's the one full of justice and compassion according to Psalm 146. And that's completely incompatible with any sort of idea of slavery in this. Secondly, you got to understand that Paul calls trafficking humans a horrible sin. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, He says this about the law. He says that the law is good if you use it lawfully, but understand the law is for those who are lawless and disobedient, ungodly, and sinners. And then he puts the list about what an ungodly sinner looks like, and in the midst of it is enslavers. There's no way Paul or the Bible teaches slavery because he's so clear right here. This is a list of sinners, a list of sins that the ungodly do, and enslaving somebody is one of those things. And then in Exodus 21, verse 16, we're told that it is a sinful act to steal a human, and that is forbidden. In summary, Paul is speaking of how to have appropriate conduct within an existing broken social state without condoning it. That's what he's doing right here in this text. That's what he says in 1 Timothy 1.10. He's forbidding enslaving others through kidnapping in that text or trading. And then he's saying, even though it's forbidden, people still sin. And so there's still this sinful social structure. And how should we as believers live within it until it is actually completely gone away. Fascinating, if you do a little bit of study of church history, how slavery was completely reformed. Now listen, still existing, but, but how as an empire, the whole attitude towards slavery changed to the, by, by the end of the Roman Empire, it was something that would not have been looked at in a positive light in any way. So what I'm saying in all of this is that Paul and other biblical writers, they undermine slavery. Paul addresses a broken social structure because he's writing to the Ephesian church where there are slaves and masters sitting together as the letter is being read. And he's saying to them, you're not second-class members if you're involved in slavery because you're brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's just think about that for a second. No matter what cultural lens we read this text through, No matter how you look at the issue of slavery, when you get to the teaching of the text and the truth of what God's word is saying, the Bible is saying slavery is always wrong. Always wrong. Never should should be happening. Whether it's through the stories of the patriarchs demonstrating that or the first century instructions that Paul is giving, whether we read it in the 17th century in the new American world or deal with the issue of modern slavery today, as we read this, we can see very clearly the Bible teaches very much condemning slavery. But he considers the existing structure and he gives gospel-centered instructions to both slaves and masters that we're going to even consider right now. He teaches, listen, 
your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you're called to unity in Christ, and that call to unity is going to completely erode any sort of slave-master relationship because you have this relationship by the Holy Spirit as united brothers and sisters in Christ. How does he do that? By admonishing both slave and master to treat each other as they would treat Christ. He calls them to Christ-centered living. And that's how he redeems a broken system and buys back to the relationship that is supposed to be happening in the church in this way. So that's heavy, and that's a lot of things, but we've got to set the foundation stone level and strong. And, and, and then we have to begin to ask, God, Would you search me for a moment here? Would you search me? Is there anything in my life that is pulling me away from seeing all mankind as created in the image of God? I don't have a slave. I'm not functioning within slavery. But but is it possible that there's anything in how I'm living right now that, that would cause a loss of dignity and worth and value that could lead to me someday even thinking that this would be okay to do? How is it that I'm practically today practicing and living in a way that's opposite to what Paul's actually teaching here? Maybe help us, to help us, let me just try to drive some specifics. Is there any place where you look down on people? Just ask the Lord to search your heart. I'm not accusing you of anything in that way, but I'm asking, would you let the Lord and His Spirit right now identify if there's any way that you look down on people less than what they actually were created to be? Maybe it's because of the the economics of things. You, You look down on people because they have more than you. You look down on people because they have less than you. That's a common way that that could potentially be played out in our life today. I mean, the principle here is to treat all people as you would treat Jesus Christ, as if Jesus Christ were in front of you and that's how you were treating them. That's what Paul is actually teaching us in this particular passage. So in your marriage, do you treat your spouse as if they were Jesus Christ? That's what Paul's driving to. In your parenting, do you treat your children as if they were Jesus Christ? Or kids, do you treat your parents as if you were treating Jesus Christ? That might change some things. If you're in a teacher-student relationship, is it possible that you would think less of your teacher because you got a bad grade? Or you just don't like them? And could this not alter that a bit? How do you treat your little league coaches? How do you treat the umpire of your little league team? You see, it's possible to very quickly get to a spot where, yeah, I'm not, I don't have a slave, but the principles of how this works get broken very quickly in, in how we live our life. And so these things are applicable. These things are helpful, even though the cultural lens might be a little bit different for us even here today. We see that there are going to be principles that relate to how we actually interact with those around us. This, this horizontal relationship that we are told to have unity and mutual submission because we're walking in the Spirit and Christ is the center of our life. It could make, make us have to change some things. We're going to address that here. Because Christ-centered living redeems broken social structures and it might need to redeem something in you. God wants to redeem these things and he's given us a way to exist and to live and to wait for the fullness of restoration at some point. But until that time, he's given us some instruction for how that is supposed to work. So write this down. Christ-centered living reorients how we work under authority. Christ-centered living reorients how we work under authority. How do you live under the authority that God has placed you? It's a little bit of a dangerous question. I remember being told as a youngster, you have an authority problem. Anybody ever had an authority problem? What they're identifying is that you're not handling authority correctly or well, right? And that's something that isn't just a young person problem. That's something that we all begin to have. It's possible that that's something that you're struggling with right now, even in the authority structure uh, called work. I know a lot of us hate our jobs. 
We think our jobs are beneath us. We think that, you know what, I'm kind of resentful that I'm doing this particular menial task. If I would have made some better life choices or if things would have gone my way a little bit better, I'd be in a better position. We think, you know what, I'm just working here, the Starbucks jobs, just because I'm trying to put money in the tank. And we need a lot of money in the tank, right? And what happens is we begin to live life very differently. We're living under authority and we're kicking against it. And what this text is showing us is that just like when there was an instruction about husbands and wives and how they were to mutually submit and live together, and then how the children are supposed to learn under the marriage how to grow to be adults to live each other, when we get to be adults, we begin to have what I would call an authority problem. And it's hard to live under authority. Anybody, anybody want to raise their hand with me here? Is it hard to live under authority? Anybody struggle with it? Everybody should be raising their hand. But you don't want to do it because I told you to do it, right? Yeah? <laughs> and we kick against that, and we don't want to do that. And Sometimes we don't even like to be in authority. We're going to address that here in just a second. But what, what the Scripture is actually teaching here is that just like in, in marriage and children, that whether we are in authority or under authority, we should all be living under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Christ Christ-centered living says, he is on the throne of my life, and so how I live under authority, how I live in authority, is instructed to me by him. He's the one that's telling me how to do that, and that's what this passage is trying to do. It's trying to help us with. Instead of falling into the easy traps of disliking our authority, not liking our teacher, not liking our boss, not liking our parents, not liking the president, we, instead of being disrespectful behind their back because of not liking those things, because of doing the bare minimum lazily at work, because we don't think work is actually worthwhile, because of grumbling and gossiping and taking advantage, Christ has given us some teaching about how to live under authority. And he says you need to reorient your attitude towards living under authority if you are living a Christ-centered way. That's what the text is actually trying to get here, using the issue of masters and slaves in the early century when this was written. Did you notice something as you read the verse? Look at the verses for a second, verses 5 to 9, and, and just look for a second. Do you see the word Christ and Lord very often? You should. <laughs> It's in every verse that we read here today. In verse 5, as to Christ. In verse 6, as slaves to Christ. In verse 7, as to the Lord. In verse 8, this he will receive back from the Lord. In all things that Paul writes about the relationship between slave and mastery, uh, master, about living under the lordship of Christ, under authority and in authority, he's saying you do this in a Christ-centered way. Christ is at the center of every aspect of this. And so Paul reminds both slave and master that they are under the lordship of Christ when he gives this teaching. Now, he could have done something very different. He could have said, hey, go back to the teaching in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapters 21 to 24, there's all sorts of instructions about slaves. All throughout the Mosaic law, there's all sorts of things about how to live within the relationship of slavery. By the way, that cuts the root of slavery, doing the same thing that Paul is doing here. And Paul could have gone back to all of those things and reiterated that, but that's not what he does. Instead of going back to the law and showing it there, he just simply roots it in this. If you're living in Christ-centeredness, you're going to relate differently to one another, whether you're under authority or in authority. And so while he tells people, uh, while he tells slaves to obey their masters, they were to see that they were obeying Christ as their ultimate master. Look in verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Whatever the authority structure is that you're under, the call to obedience is obedience first and foremost to Christ. And as you obey Christ, you obey the authority that he has placed into your life. So Paul is saying here, Transfer masters, don't just transfer your job. 
That's what he's saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 22. He, he wrote there that the, for he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. He's saying even if you're in the institution of slavery, if you have me as your master, you, you have the freedom of being in Christ and, and of obeying your earthly master the way I've called you to because you're first and foremost concerned about me. Paul is calling slaves to a Christ-centered perspective and he gives us a higher preoccupation than serving just our human masters. It's kind of like that common story about the three men who were building the cathedral and they were approached and asked, what are you doing? As they were sitting there carving stone together, the three of them in a row, and, and the, first sla- the first man responded, I'm chipping stones. The second man was then asked, what are you doing? He says, I'm earning a wage. And then the third man was asked, what are you doing? And he says, I'm building a great cathedral. You see, as we serve under authority, as we obey the authority that God has placed under us, we're not just chipping stones and earning wages. We are serving our master. We're building the cathedral of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so Paul reorients the internal attitudes towards work for anybody under authority. And he says, this is what it's supposed to look like. And he gives us four, at least four, exemplary ways that we are to serve under authority in this passage. Let me just highlight them for you here. The first thing he says is this, work respectfully. When he says at the very beginning, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, he's not saying obey them because you should be afraid of them doing some horrible thing to you. What he's actually saying is the same thing that he said back in chapter 5, verse 21, where he said, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Same words, same words, fear and trembling, reverence. Same thing that's being said here. He's saying, obey whatever authority that you're under out of reverence for Jesus Christ. Work respectfully, work seriously and reverently because you're working for Christ. He then says a second thing. Not just respectfully, but he says, work wholeheartedly. Notice in verse 5, he says, in sincerity of heart. Sincerity there literally means singleness of heart. And then in verse 6, he says, do God's will from the heart. Notice, pretty easy, the emphasis on the heart. The emphasis on working not just in an outward way, but but putting your full effort into it, putting your full self into it, working with the wholeness of who you are. Paul's saying here, don't be hypocrites. Don't just work when the boss is looking. You know that kind of water cooler scattering of rats that happens when the boss walks in and everybody realizes, oh, back to work, back to work, I gotta go, right? Fascinating, I I grew up as a missionary kid in Indonesia and one of the old-time missionaries was having great difficulty in building a grass airstrip way up in the high mountains uh, where there was an unreached village. He was trying to evangelize among them and one of the things that was commonly done was built this this grass airstrip so that the bush plane could land and help with medical things and economic things and just support the missionary, all of of that. And and yet the village had to want to do that because they they didn't have modern equipment. They had to get their their stone axes and, and, and and primitive tools out and they had to clear the jungle and flatten the land on the side of this really steep mountain so that they could build this. It was hard backbreaking work. And the missionary having great difficulty in actually getting uh, the, the workers to accomplish that because he would show up at the beginning of the morning and everybody would be there with their tools and they would start working. He would walk away to go do some other task and they would all sit down and stop. Now, it became pretty obvious because he would come back and no progress was actually made. And he kept trying to get them motivated to actually work in some way. And he, was, he couldn't figure out a way to do it until finally he came up with an idea. See, earlier in life, he had been blinded. And so he gathered all of the workers together and he said, I know what's going on. Listen, we're never going to get this job done if I have to be here watching you the whole time. I got, there's other things I've got to be involved in. You need to work when I'm not here, so this is what I'm going to do. And he took the glass eye out of his eye and set it on a stone and said, I'm always watching you. Wow. Airstrip built in record time. You see, this is what the text is saying here. He's saying saying you need to work wholeheartedly, not just when the boss is looking, but, but, but putting the full effort into it in that way. So work respectfully, work wholeheartedly. Here's number three, work willingly. 
It says rendering service with a good will. Good will is actually a good attitude. Man, it's so easy for the grind of work to grind down our attitudes. Anybody in that boat too? Yeah? Paul's saying here, don't work with a begrudging spirit, but put your heart and soul into it and into the work because you're doing God's will. I want you to think about your job for just a moment. The thing that you're going to show up to tomorrow morning, Monday morning, first day of the week, you got to get back to work. It's summer. You'd rather be outside doing some other stuff, right? And so you get there and you're, uh, I got to do whatever, right? Do you consider your work God's will? Because that's what this verse is saying. Verse 7 is saying, you are doing God's will when you work your earthly job. No work is merely work. All work is a way to serve Christ. So maybe your work stinks. And maybe you feel stuck. And maybe you want to find a better job. And I'm not saying you shouldn't find a better job. But first, reorient your attitude. Your boss is Jesus. You're working for him in your job. Guess what it looks like to live sent? It means to work your job as if you were working for Christ. That's Christ-centered living. That's living sent. That's our theme for the year, right? It's not just when you're out actually doing the work of evangelism. Like your work is doing the will of God. That's the significance of what's going on here, Paul is saying. So work respectfully, work wholeheartedly, work willingly, and then last, work expectantly. It says here, knowing, in verse 8, that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or is free. Work expectantly, because Paul's reminding you there's an ultimate reward that's coming. No act goes unnoticed, and believers are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and be rewarded based upon their present faithfulness at your work. I mean, wouldn't that perspective maybe reorient some of us in how we work? Now, in all of this, notice we're already moving into the, applying the principle here, and I want you to remember that there's not a one-to-one correlation. Slaves don't equal employees. Masters do not equal your boss. However, what Paul is teaching here, what Paul's teaching believers, is that those who were slaves were to reorient how they go about their work under the authority that they were placed. And when Christ is at the center of how I live, I see that I am working for Christ as my boss. So just consider for a moment your orientation towards your work. Is there anything that you need to repent of or believe differently as you hear these things? Or maybe just put into action in how you live. Is Christ at the center of those work efforts? Or would you say that actually I'm pretty disrespectful at work? I slip into half-heartedness. I'm not super willing. I'm actually pretty stubborn. And I really don't believe that there is a reward at the end for all of it. If any of that is coloring your work, there's heart work for you to do in repenting of that and beginning to believe what the text is actually saying here. If that's what you're like at school, not just at work, but at school, if you're super disrespectful to your teachers and half-hearted in your work and unwilling and and, and, like homework is always a battle with your parents because you just don't want to do it. And listen, the text is teaching us here, whatever authority that you are under, when you're under that authority, you're under the authority of Christ and Christ is calling you to live differently. To li- this is the, the, the ethics and the morals of how he wants you to live. doesn't matter what authority you're under, whether you're doing chores or serving at church or volunteering for an organization, we need to be praying for that we be respectful and wholehearted and willing and expectant in the attitude in which we work. But Paul addresses one more thing in verse 9. He addresses the other category, not just those who are under authority, but those who are, who are in authority. He says that there's a, a lordship issue here where when you're in authority, you're supposed to work in a certain way as well. 
I was thinking a little bit about this and, and thinking about the fact that submission to authority is one of the markers of spiritual maturity. And likewise, how you handle when you're in authority is a marker of spiritual maturity. Listen, by spiritual maturity, I mean uh, how you embrace living with Christ at the center of your life. And so there's some instruction that Paul gives here too. I summarize it, summarize it this way. Christ-centered living renovates how we lead when we're in authority. When I'm in authority, Christ-centered leading renovates, it informs how I live. Now, Paul here does something incredibly important I want you to notice. Pastor Jerry has pointed this out. Notice here that Paul instructs the Ephesian masters after the Ephesian slaves. And the reason he does that is because he's bringing dignity and value to who he addresses first. In each of the examples of mutual submission, culturally speaking, in that particular day, it's the lesser that he addresses first to raise up the dignity of the wife and the child and the slave. He's done this again because Paul is giving a countercultural and life-changing instruction to how to mutually submit and walk in the Spirit in these ways. And Paul says this about leadership. Leadership is motivated by Christ when it practices, number one, mutuality. Leadership is renovated by Christ when it practices mutuality. Notice verse 9 starts with, Masters, do the same to them. Them meaning the servants. In the same way that you want them to work respectfully and wholeheartedly and willingly and expectantly, you should be working, stewarding your job as one who is in authority in that same manner. So often we find that it's easy to, to accept bad behavior because we're the one in charge. I'm the boss and so I get to act poorly. And Paul's saying here, you don't get to behave worse because you're the boss or the owner. You don't get to treat people less because you're the one who is in authority. You need to treat them as if you were treating Christ. That's Christ-centered living. Listen, if you have any sort of authority, maybe you're a manager at your work, maybe you're the owner of your work, maybe you're the teacher at school or the parent at home, whatever it is, Paul is teaching here and he's saying just because you're the one who's in authority doesn't mean that you get to do things outside of the lordship of Christ and however you want to do because you're the boss. Everybody on earth who's in some sort of position of authority is still under the authority of the Lord. So Paul says that leadership is renovated when we practice mutuality, but the second thing is he says when we avoid hostility. Notice what it says so clear, masters, do the same and stop your threatening. That's not appropriate for somebody who is living under the lordship of Christ in authority of others around them. That's not appropriate in any way. Do you see how this is cutting the root of slavery right in the, right in the text? Do you see how he's saying you can't threaten and, and overpower people with your position? That's not how it works because you're to mutually submit to one another in the Holy Spirit. This would have been rare advice in Paul's time. But Christian masters were to be different. They were not to bully or use aggression. I love what Paul, Pastor Jerry said a couple weeks ago in the parenting sermon. He said this, never use a threat. Never use a threat when you're in authority parenting your kids. And what Paul's saying here is, masters and slaves in this household text, in this environment where oftentimes the slaves were living in the same house as the master, considered oftentimes as part of the family. Listen, if you don't threaten your kids, you shouldn't be threatening your slaves either. It's not about bullying and overpowering. Wow, how much our world needs to hear that. Because so many times the leadership we admire is the one who can just get it done no matter how. And Christ-centered living says, no, how matters, and it can't be with force. He then says this, he says, 
Leadership is renovated by Christ when, you, when the leaders submit to accountability. He says, knowing, in verse 9, that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Just a simple principle here. If you're in authority, if you're the one who has the authority and the position, it doesn't mean you don't have accountability. It doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want. It doesn't mean you get to act different than the ones who are under your authority. Masters are to live with the fear of Christ, the reverence for their creator. A couple of things from Proverbs helps us here. Proverbs 22, 2. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. Proverbs 29, 13. The poor man and the oppressor meet together. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. Proverbs 15, 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. We all live under accountability, even if we're in the place of authority. And the best leadership submits to the authority of Christ in their life and how they exercise that leadership and authority. Remember, all are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for how they live, leaders included. And then last, leadership is renovated when we remember God's impartiality. Look what it says, last phrase, and that there is no partiality with him. On the matter of slavery, this is such an important phrase. I mean, the way we should read this is that there is no partiality with him. How should we respond? Woo! Yes, true, and good, and right, beautiful and wonderful. This is the teaching of Christ-centeredness. There's no partiality. God doesn't see those who are masters different than those who are slaves in that particular time. He doesn't see today those in authority and those under authority differently. There's no partiality with him. Their dignity, value, and worth as image bearers, imagio Dei of God. Listen, there's no partiality within that. And so we should not treat each other mutually in any way that would elevate or lower anybody else around us. This is what undermines slavery and cuts it at the root. In summary, we see here these leadership principles shorten the distance between servant and master. And this way of life was radical. And it's the radical way that we are supposed to live today as well. So how do you do when you're in any sort of position of authority? How do you do? How do you exercise that authority? That's the practicality to the principle that Christ is trying to teach us in this text here today. Is there anything that you need to repent of? Any way that you haven't practiced mutuality as the boss? Maybe you need to repent as the parent because you, you actually use hostility. Maybe you need to repent as, as, as the lead volunteer, the director of whatever you're volunteering at because you don't submit to any accountability yourself. Or perhaps you've just forgotten any sort of impartiality that God actually teaches throughout the totality of his word. What do you need to repent of? What do you need to take hold of and believe from this text here today? How could it possibly change your life when you realize this is Christ's call? This is Christ-centeredness. I have to have Christ and his teaching at the center of my life if I'm going to mutually submit in whatever place that God has called me to live in or under authority. How do I live like Christ in this way? How do I live like Christ who said this? For even the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you see Christ-centeredness here, the way of Christ here? The way of Christ is one who serves, who's willing to take up the towel of servant and slave and give to others, so much so that he gave away all his rights and even his life to serve you, to buy others out of slavery. What would it look like for you to live a life that is buying others out of wrong authority and into a right relationship with Christ as brothers and sisters? <coughs> what if we were a church 
that proclaimed up high and lived in everyday down low ways that Christ has ransomed us out of the slavery and the bondage of sin and that we could invite others into this brother-sister relationship, this mutual relationship where we walk in the Spirit, submitting to one another, and in doing so, show that others too could have that goodness of life that is Christ-centered. Let's ask Him for that now. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the challenge of it. Lord, there's times where we come to it, and when we first read it, it's a bit confusing. It's hard to understand. Lord, this has been a text like that today, but by your Spirit, Lord, would you continue to affirm the truth of your word to us? One that says that when we are under your authority, there is no room for the abuse of another human. There's no room for the lowering of the dignity, value, of worth of any human. There's no room for slavery to exist. But Lord, we confess that there's just easy ways, quick ways that we could easily easily fall into these traps. Lord, would you help us would you help us to be respectful and wholehearted and willing and Lord, to lead with practicing mutuality and not heavy-handed, but under authority and seeing the value of all. Lord, we recognize that until we get under your authority, we'll do whatever we want. And so, Lord, bring us into submission to you. Bring us into your authority structure. Help us to live this out day by day. It's in Christ's name I pray.